Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? You know, I thought today I would talk about the issue of video game preservation. Uh, I was inspired to do this because of something that recently happened with Ubisoft, a game company that's Well, to put it lightly, it's had a pretty darn controversial few years, but Ubisoft makes lots of different game titles, and one particularly popular franchise from them is the Assassin's Creed series. Well, one of the entries in this long-running franchise came out way back in 2012, and it was called Assassin's Creed 3 Liberation, and it's notable for a few reasons. One was that the player controls a character named Aveline de Grand Pré who happens to be the first female assassin in the series that the player could control. Before that, they were all male protagonists. Later on, Ubisoft released a remastered version of the game titled Assassin's Creed Liberation HD. Anyway, Steam, which is the video game store, the digital video game store, so it's an online store, it's run by Valve, which 
used to primarily be known as a video game developer, now is mostly known as the company that runs Steam. Anyway, Steam posted a message on July 11th, 2022 that said, At the request of the publisher, Assassin's Creed Liberation HD is no longer available for sale on Steam. Which is fair enough, these things happen. Companies will allow something to technically kind of go out of print, although in this case, that's kind of a misnomer because we're talking about digital sales. But Ubisoft decided to stop selling copies of this game. Now, Ubisoft had also previously announced that it would be ending multiplayer functionality for several of its games, including Assassin's Creed. Now, that can be disappointing to hardcore fans, but at the same time, you can kind of understand why it's happening, because supporting multiplayer means that a company has to run servers that host those multiplayer sessions, which also means maintaining those servers and responding if something goes wrong with them. So for older games, the player base that's still accessing multiplayer might be so small that it's difficult to justify the ongoing expense of keeping those servers online, particularly if it's a game that doesn't have a subscription model to it, right? Like if it's a game where multiplayer was part of the features of the game that you got with the purchase of the full game, and it's not an ongoing expense, then the company is footing the bill for providing that service even after people are no longer really buying the game. Uh, it's a bummer, but, you know, it's kind of understandable from the perspective of the business. However, these days, a lot of games require at least some sort of online component, typically as part of digital rights management, or DRM, which is terrible, but here's how it goes. The basic idea is that the game you're running on your local device, like on your computer or whatever, checks in with a home base server that belongs to the company in order to verify that the copy of the game that you are playing is legitimate. And at that point, the home base server says, yeah, go ahead, let, let them play the game. Or if the game isn't legit, or if the connection can't be made for some reason, the server tells your local machine, hey, don't let this jerk face play that game. They probably stole it. So for players who just want a single player experience, right? Like it's a game that's just meant to be played on your computer. There's no online component. There's no multiplayer component. If those, those folks have a poor internet connection or no connection to the internet, this kind of DRM is a huge hassle because it means there's no real way to access the game legitimately. But that's the nature of DRM. I've done full episodes about this in the past. All right, let's get back over to Ubisoft. So in its initial message that was published on Steam, the implication was that the Assassin's Creed game wouldn't just be unavailable to purchase from that point forward, but would in fact be rendered completely unplayable. That people who had purchased a copy of this game would be unable to access their game at all, even if they were just trying to play local single-player mode. Nor would they be able to run any of the downloadable content, or DLC, that they had purchased for the game. Steam would issue a follow-up statement that said people who own the game already would still be able to play it. They would even be able to re-download it. So, on Steam, you have a library of games, these games may or may not actually be downloaded to your computer, but it's a record of all the games you have purchased throughout your time using Steam. And if you want, you can re-download a game to install it on a new machine. Let's say that you're upgrading your computer 
you've decided to you know switch to a brand new new computer system that can run the latest games but you also have a soft spot for some older games well you can re-download them to your new machine so ubisoft said players will still be able to do that they'll still be able to access the game that they purchased however they will not be able to access online content or dlc for that game that would be unavailable Anyway, that whole mess prompted this episode because with so many games requiring online services to function, even if the games themselves are otherwise confined to a local device, what happens when the company that provides that online service goes out of business? Because that has happened more than once in the video game world. Or what happens if a company like Ubisoft decides to shift resources away from continuing support of older games that have smaller player bases. The thing you purchased suddenly becomes inaccessible. Even if the code is fine, and even if you have a machine that otherwise could run the game without a problem, you still can't access the game. That approach means it becomes difficult to preserve such games, and in some cases, it could even be illegal for you to try and do it. In other cases, it might not be illegal, but it might be practically impossible. And so these games are lost in time like tears in rain. Let me know if you got that reference. Now, some of y'all might be saying, huh, I didn't even know video game preservation was a thing. Or maybe a few of you could be saying, why is it important to even preserve video games in the first place? And it's totally fair that not everyone is into video games. That's cool, right? I'm not into every kind of art there is. Doesn't mean the art's bad. I'm just not into it. But there are a lot of folks who are really into video games, including those who consider video games to be a type of art. I happen to be one of those people. I don't necessarily think video games, at least not most of them, typically qualify as high art. But I do think there's a lot of artistic expression that goes into creating video games, whether it's from character design or level design or even gameplay elements or the textures that you use to enhance visuals, or the story that plays out over the course of a game, there are a lot of avenues for artistic expression. Some of them you might not classically think of as artistic, like gameplay elements. You might think, oh, you know, pressing A to jump, that's nothing. But you look at some of these games and some of the elegant approaches to gameplay elements in them, you start to think there is an art to this. And people who are particularly artistic can create really transformational experiences through that. So even if you strip all the art away, right, if you if you deny that there's anything artful about video games, the fact remains that people and a lot of people in many of these cases, I mean, some of these games have hundreds of folks who worked on these. Well, those people worked really hard to make that game happen. They labored over getting the various components up to snuff. And then they also worked really hard to make sure all these different components actually work together so that one thing doesn't break something else. And let's be fair, video game companies are not always successful in doing this. There are plenty of examples of broken games out there. Some of them got less broken over time thanks to patches and stuff, but we have seen no shortage of you know, games that just didn't work properly. But I still feel like the work of the people who who dedicated their time and their their skill and their knowledge to creating these games should be acknowledged and it should be preserved. And I think two big things that 
prompt people to question the need to preserve games are that there's still this perception among some people that video games are meant for kids. Like, video games are for babies. They're just silly diversions, and there's really no reason to put any effort into preserving those things. There's another perception that undermines the concept of preserving video games, and that's that they are so tightly connected to commerce. They are a product. You know, like, you would go out and buy a hammer, but you wouldn't necessarily want to preserve the hammer for posterity. And, you know, not all games are made specifically to be sold, but the vast majority of them are. So they aren't really considered art by some folks. However, I would argue that most art is actually meant to be sold. It's not just meant to hang on a wall and, and the artist makes no money from it. I mean, if art was never sold, artists wouldn't make a living. Uh, you know, whether it's patronage or it's selling it through an exhibition or whatever, art and commerce always have a relationship with each other. Otherwise, you'd run out of artists because they all starve to death. And of course, there are countless examples in, say, the fashion world where people spend truckloads of cash on designer goods and they consider these art. Like the fashion world, that is art. Art that has been made to be worn in some way. But even while people are spending those truckloads of cash on the latest fashions, they do so knowing that the stuff they are buying is going to be out of fashion in six months to a year. Like the thing that is avant-garde and desired today is going to be almost dismissed in a year's time, which that is the stuff that wrinkles my brain. Video games I get. Fashion, I mean, it just, you just have to take one look at me and you would know he doesn't get fashion. That's fair. And, and I'm not saying that fashion is, is silly or frivolous. I just don't get it. But let's talk about video game preservation. So one of the methods I have talked about in fairly recent episodes of Tech Stuff is the MAME platform. And MAME is M-A-M-E, and it stands for Multiple Arcade Machine Emulator. MAME's purpose is to emulate, or, you know, simulate, if you like, the circuitry and programming of various game platforms. Now, the games themselves come in the form of ROMs, R-O-Ms, or read-only memory. There, uh, there are people who have copied the code off of classic video games to preserve those ROMs. And originally, these ROMs were programmed directly onto microchips. So if you were to open up a classic arcade game, you would see a whole bunch of circuit boards with chips on them. And this is the game. Like, the game is physically coded onto these circuit boards. And those microchips include the, the ROMs, the read-only memory that is the game itself. So... In order to create a, a copy of that, you have to strip the code off of the ROMs, and that's not always easy. In fact, it's pretty complicated. And then you also have to create software that uh, imitates the operation of that actual circuit so that the ROMs will run properly. And that also is a non-trivial thing. So the arcade machines and then later on cartridge-based consoles and also computers would have games that were programmed in physical circuitry. Uh, cartridges in particular, right? Like that's there's a circuit board in a cartridge and that's what the game is programmed on. Then later on, you would have things like images that would be put on optical disks 
we'll get to that too. So the main platform mimics the circuitry, allowing the copied code from whatever the original ROM was to play on a computer. Uh, doesn't always play perfectly well. Sometimes the emulator is just an approximation of how the game would work. Uh, in other cases, the approximation is incredibly accurate to the point where it feels like you're playing the original arcade machine. It depends heavily on the level of emulation for that particular game, as well as the specs on the machine you're running MAME on in the first place. We'll come back and talk more about MAME and emulation and the reasons why this is important for preservation after we take this quick break. So the original purpose of MAME was to serve as a working remotely where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. ...way to preserve games. Now, obviously, a lot of people have used MAME software to create like a, a home arcade machine that's capable of running hundreds or thousands of different games. Like you can even 
go online and find companies that offer these things where they will have a, a, a computer often powered by a Raspberry Pi, which is a very basic computer that's running MAME emulation software and has a, a like a smart card just loaded with gigabytes of ROMs on it. But that was not the original intent of creating MAME. Like, what the idea wasn't, hey, let's create a way for people to get access to these hundreds of arcade machines in the comfort of their own home. It was the idea that we need something that can preserve these games because the hardware that the games are built upon will degrade over time and eventually the last remaining cabinet of any given game will stop working. And at that point, the game is lost. So this is a way of preventing that loss from happening. It just so happens that it also means that you could create a full arcade in one machine by downloading lots of ROMs. However, you should know downloading ROMs can be illegal. It's technically copyright violation because you're downloading a copyrighted work without legitimately purchasing that work. Doesn't mean that it doesn't happen everywhere. It does, but it's still illegal. Now, never mind that in some cases, at least, there's no way for you to buy a legal copy of the game. Uh, or if the, there may be that the only legal way to buy the game is to find someone selling it on a market like eBay. And it might be for an incredibly expensive price that that might be the only, and there's no guarantee that those will work by the way. Like you might go out and spend a, a couple thousand dollars buying a classic arcade cabinet, find out that you need to do a lot of maintenance on it in order to make it work properly. Uh, the, the circuitry, if it's treated well, will typically hold up for a very long time, but things like the actual buttons and controls, they wear out. I mean, that's just wear and tear. So yeah, it could get to a point where there's just, there's very few avenues for you to make a legitimate purchase of a game. Uh, the way MAME is supposed to be used is that someone who has a legal right to a ROM, like they own a game or maybe they even own the IP for the game, well, they can download the ROM for their own use and they can run the MAME software on a computer. They can activate that ROM and it's totally legal. So for example, let's say that you went out and purchased an arcade machine of a classic game like Elevator Action, which I, I absolutely unironically love and know I cannot justify it, but I love that game. Well, let's say you bought a cabinet of that. You went out and you, you purchased a copy of it. You could then legally download a ROM of elevator action, and that could serve either as a backup or as a replacement for the ROM on the arcade machine itself if it had stopped working. So it's kind of like making a backup of a recording for your own personal use. That's acceptable. That's fair use. But if you didn't already own a copy of elevator action, then downloading the ROM would essentially be piracy. In fact, not essentially. It is piracy. As for MAME itself, MAME is totally legal to download. MAME doesn't have any games on it natively. It's just a program that emulates different kinds of hardware. MAME is kind of like a console in a way. It's the thing that lets you play the games, but it is not the games themselves. So theoretically, you should not be downloading ROMs for games that you don't already own. 
However, a lot of games are otherwise unavailable. Like the companies that made some of those games have long since vanished. So there's nowhere for you to go to, to buy them. Or sometimes another company has come around and scooped up the old IP from someone who has gone out of business. Sometimes that can be hard to track down. Like you might think, oh, there's this great game I loved when I was a kid. The company that made it went out of business. I have no idea who owns that intellectual property because chances are someone bought it when uh, uh, the old company went out of business. So there are a lot of cases where finding a legitimate way to purchase the game you want just doesn't appear to exist. And that is frustrating. That being said, there are some game creators who have granted permission for folks to download ROMs of their games. So these are creators who have the right to do that, right? They are the folks who actually own the intellectual property in the first place. So they have the capacity, the authority to grant permission to people so that they can download the ROMs. And the main website does link to ROMs that meet that qualification. However, you're not going to find any real big names in that list. In fact, you may not recognize a single title. There are a couple of dozen titles that fall into this category. I actually looked them over and I didn't recognize any of them. None of them were titles that I was familiar with. So to get the stuff that you, you know and love, you would have to go elsewhere. Now, I mentioned arcade machines, but that is not the only hardware that MAME emulates. Since 2015, the MAME platform has integrated a separate emulator called MESS, M-E-S-S, which stands for Multi-Emulator Super System. So MAME's primary purpose was to preserve arcade games that otherwise would eventually disappear once that last working cabinet gave up the ghost. MESS focuses more on consoles and computer systems, most of which are well out of production. And MESS supports nearly 1,000 systems in total. Not all of them are fully functional, however. So while you could count all the ones that are included in the emulator and you'd get up to more than 900, you'd have to keep in mind some of those are only partially functional. There are really big names on that list, by the way, including the Nintendo Entertainment System or NES, uh, the Super Nintendo, Nintendo 64 is on there, Sega Genesis, also known as the Mega Drive, is on there, the Sega Dreamcast is on there, older consoles are on there too, the Atari 2600 and ColecoVision and Intellivision are all on there, and obviously lots more game consoles as well. As for computers, you name it. I mean, there's everything from Texas Instruments to Apple II computer systems to Commodore computers to Amiga and more. Now, these are all devices that have long since been out of production, which means you're not going to be able to buy a new one. You might be able to find a working used one somewhere, but chances are emulation is going to be the only way you will experience a lot of the programming that was originally made for those devices. Now, again, in a lot of cases, that software is not technically abandonware, meaning, you know, abandonware is something where there's no legitimate owner of that IP anymore. It has been abandoned. It is just existing on its own with no owner above it. Someone somewhere owns the IP for most of the software that's out there. So you might think of it as abandonware because nobody's done anything with it for a very long time, but legally speaking, it's not because it does still belong to some company or person out there. Now, it may be that that entity doesn't care if folks download ROMs or images of that 
of that program or game or whatever. Uh, image in this case means essentially a copy of the code, not an actual picture of something. But you can't just assume that. And it's certainly not the case everywhere. I mean, some companies like Nintendo, for example, are really well known for being super protective of their work, even if there is no way to purchase the titles from the company itself anymore. I mean, you just look at Nintendo and you look at how for first party games, the price never comes down. Like you could look at first party games that Nintendo sells to this day and the games themselves might be years old, but the price hasn't budged. That really gives you a hint at Nintendo's perspective on this kind of thing, which I'm not saying is a wrong perspective. I'm just saying it indicates that you're not likely to find Nintendo saying, oh, sure, go ahead, download images of our games. We don't care. That I can't imagine that ever happening. However, let's put aside the ownership question for a moment. To get back to the central point of this episode, the MAME and MESS platforms and others that are like them aim to provide a way to preserve the games and other programs as well, but we're focusing mostly on games that had been made for these old platforms that are no longer in production. Without the emulators, we would gradually lose access to that work. We would be fully dependent upon companies reissuing work, which they might not ever do. And computers change so quickly that a lot of stuff that was made for older systems becomes impossible to access otherwise without an emulator, right? Like, you can get old PC programs and try to run them on a modern PC, and sometimes it just becomes inoperable. You can't even use it. I remember distinctly having a version of the classic Star Wars arcade game, the wireframe game that you saw in the arcades way back in the 80s. And I had a, a PC version of that game. And I set it aside and kind of lost track of it. And then we upgraded computers a couple of times. This is when I was a kid. And I found the game and I thought, oh, I, I want to play this. I haven't played it in a very long time. Loaded it up, could not play the game because now it ran so screamingly fast that just touching the joystick would make it uh, jerk to the left or jerk to the right or up or down or whatever. And things were moving so quickly on the screen, you couldn't see anything. And you blink once and you would see game over. So it became impossible to play. I needed to have an emulator in order to run that code at the proper speed. And I didn't. So that game just became inaccessible to me. Let me give you another less frivolous example. So both of my parents write novels. And when I was a kid, my parents bought an Apple IIe computer. My dad used it primarily so that he could write books and short stories using the Apple, although he would also play the occasional computer game on there too. In fact, I remember him being particularly fond of the game Wizardry, which was kind of a D&D &D style dungeon crawler computer RPG. But anyway, dad used a relatively primitive word processor program on the Apple to write out his first few books. And he saved these chapter by chapter onto floppy disks. It would take more than a dozen floppy disks to hold a single novel's manuscript. Uh, in fact, I once accidentally deleted an entire chapter of his work because he had left the computer to go do something else and he had not saved the file for a little bit and I thought he had just left the computer on so I was thought I was being conscientious and not wanting to waste electricity so I turned the computer off. Whoopsie. So if you ever wondered why the novel Moon Dreams didn't go the way you thought it was going, that was probably because of me. Anyway, flash forward. 
It's been a couple of decades since we had a working Apple computer. So assuming the data on those floppy disks is still intact, which is a very big assumption because magnetic storage is not permanent. It will degrade over time. But assuming it's still intact, we would still have to find either a working Apple IIe computer and a copy of that word processing program in order to access those files. Or we'd have to get an emulator that would run on a modern computer, plus an external floppy disk drive that could connect to a modern computer, possibly through an interface like USB or something. Otherwise, that data is just going to slowly rot on those floppy disks, which honestly is probably what's going to happen. Now, the good news is those early books all published, right? So you can actually track down copies of the books, though it could take a lot of searching. Most of those books have been out of print for nearly 40 years. But as for the earlier drafts of those books, some of which were had notable differences from the published version of the book, there's one children's novel in particular my dad wrote where I thought the original draft was in every way superior to the published version of the book. Those might be lost forever. So emulators are one method we can use to preserve games and other types of, of coded content. And that works pretty well for local games, as in games that are meant to run on a local device that may or may not be connected to the internet. But like I said earlier, there are a lot of games, an increasing number of games, in fact, that rely in part or entirely on some sort of online component. And let's tackle the DRM games. And like I said, I've talked about DRM a lot in fairly recent episodes, so we won't go into too much detail here. Now, some games might just need an initial check-in. But increasingly, lots of games require a persistent online connection. These games, and, and just to be clear, it's not just games that do this. Lots of different software does this too. These games have what's called an always-on DRM or persistent online authentication requirement. So if you lose your connection to the internet, you're likely to get a little pop-up notification within the game explaining that the connection to the authentication server is down and that this is going to affect your experience in some way. For example, the game might no longer count any progress toward achievements because it can't verify that you're not cheating. Or it might be unable to save your progress in the game as you play it. Now, today, a lot of games will save progress locally on your computer. And then once you have reestablished a connection with the authentication server, it might give you the option to either revert to the save that was established by the server the last time you were connected, or you can choose your local save, which is probably more recent, and then that will just overwrite the older one on the server, and you can go from there, and there's no other interruption. But if that server, that authentication server, goes offline, either due to malfunction or the company chooses to no longer support it, then legitimate owners of this game suffer. They're unable to access all the features of their game, or in some cases, they're not able to launch the game at all. Thus, there is a single point of failure for this game, and it's not even within the player's control to address it. Their hardware might be working just fine, but because of this connectivity requirement, they are unable to play the game that they legally purchased, which doesn't seem fair. Well, 
I'm going to talk more about that and how this ties into the issue with piracy in just a moment and then get back into video game preservation. But first, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Okay, so we were talking about how any sort of issues with connecting to an authentication server can create a, an untenable experience for a legitimate owner of a video game copy. Well, meanwhile, you've got people who are engaged in piracy, who are illegally downloading games, they're stealing games, they're cracking those authentication requirements, because obviously, if you've stolen a game and the server detects that this is not a legitimate copy, you're not going to have access to those features. So you got to get around that, right? So Pirates can launch their copy and play it with no problems, at least for games that are local single-player games. It's a little bit different from multiplayer games because getting around authentication servers for online play requires a lot more work, 
But at least for single player experiences, it's not an issue once the game has been cracked. Yeah, you might not have access to things like achievements, but you'll be able to play the game. So a lot of folks have gone on to say that always on DRM is just plain bad technology. Like it's it just doesn't work. It's it's a bad idea because it does not do what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to prevent piracy, but people are still pirating games. And meanwhile, it creates a bad experience for legitimate owners. You know, the people who actually spent money to purchase a real copy of the game, they're the ones who get affected by always on DRM. The pirates have worked a way around it. So it's a double whammy, right? It doesn't do what it's supposed to do, which is stop piracy. And instead, it impacts the people who are legally purchasing the games, which you could argue drives more and more people to piracy. It's kind of a self-defeating tool. Anyway, back to video game preservation. So in this case, the cracked games might be the only games that can stick around. Because if a company were to go out of business or to shift assets away from supporting a particular title like Ubisoft is doing then a partic that particular title might lose some or all of its functionality. The cracked games, which have severed this connection to home base, will continue to work, or at least work as much as they possibly can, since online functionality will still be affected if the company stops running servers to support whatever that functionality is. Let's consider the MMO world for a second. MMO stands for Massively Multiplayer Online. So it's kind of a general category, and there are a lot of subcategories under it. And MMO pretty much describes one aspect of what these games are all about. Namely, these are games that are played online, so an internet connection is required, and they support a large number of simultaneous players, thus the massive multiplayer. A popular subset of MMO games are MMORPGs, or MMO games that are role-playing games. A famous one that's still going on is World of Warcraft. That's kind of like the flagship example of MMORPGs, historically speaking. But there are other games that came and went and would have totally disappeared if it weren't for dedicated fans who would commit their own resources to keeping instances of the game running by running their own servers. One such example is Star Wars Galaxies, which is obviously a game set in the Star Wars universe. That game originally launched back in 2003, and it received numerous updates and expansions, but the player base diminished slowly over time. By 2009, Sony Online Entertainment, which ran the game, alerted players who had characters on certain servers that those servers would soon be shut down, and the player would be given the capability to transfer their character to one of the remaining servers that Sony would continue to operate. However, in 2011, Sony would shut down the whole shebang. So why did it do that? Well, one reason was that the Star Wars-based MMORPG Star Wars The Old Republic was about to launch. So the company wanted to dedicate its resources to supporting the new game and also push people to move over to the new title. Uh, keep in mind, these MMORPGs, the way they generated revenue is that these were subscription-based services, right? For the most part, you would subscribe and pay a monthly fee in order to maintain access to the game. So unlike most video games where you purchase it once and that's it, 
This was a model where you are having a recurring payment to the company. And this is before we get into stuff like, you know, uh, in-game content and microtransactions, which is the predominant revenue generation model that we see today. Like, that's how, how video game companies are really making revenue now is that they have ways to continue to sell you stuff within a game so that you keep on spending money on a title. Uh, and a lot of those titles end up being free to play, but to get access to all the cool stuff, you got to cough up the big bucks. Anyway, Sony decides to shut down Star Wars Galaxies. Now, Star Wars Galaxy has had a pretty robust set of features, including a player-centric economy in which players could buy and sell goods that other players had crafted or that they had crafted. They could become bounty hunters or smugglers or, you know, a Jedi or whatever. It was a game that received pretty positive reviews, and the players who were still with the game toward the end weren't really ready to say goodbye. So some of them didn't. And there are a couple of different groups that set out to emulate the server system that ran Star Wars Galaxies. One such group formed the SWG EMU project. So it's SWG EMU. And that actually aimed to create servers that ran an earlier version of Star Wars Galaxies, one that didn't include a change that was made to the game's combat system a little later on. There is another group called Project SWG that has set out to create emulated versions of the servers running the later versions of the game. So the one that actually did incorporate some of those changes to combat, plus other expansions. So there are fan-run servers out there. Some of them are still under construction, and these are keeping that game alive. And otherwise, it would just be gone. That's cool, but not all companies are keen to allow unofficial servers to operate. For example, Electronic Arts, or EA, a company that was once uh, said on a poll from a consumerist to be the worst company in America, used to rely on a company called GameSpy to manage online multiplayer functions for some of their titles. Titles like Battlefield Heroes and Battlefield 2142. But, you know, there's always a bigger fish. And sometimes bigger fish have different ideas of what they want to support. So what happened with GameSpy? IGN merged with GameSpy in 2004. Then Ziff Davis acquired IGN. And then Ziff Davis decided to shut down a whole bunch of services that had been run through IGN and GameSpy because it was, you know, an expense. It was it was having to maintain and run these things. And Ziff Davis is like, why are we paying to do this? Hardly anyone uses it. Shut it down. And that included online multiplayer functions that games like the Battlefield ones I mentioned were using. So a group of fans began to run servers that would allow players to keep playing the online multiplayer functions of those games. To get to be able to do that, they had to get copies of the games that would be uh, compatible with this approach. And, you know, their view was that this is a way of preserving a game they love and preserving a part of the game that was a big part of the experience. There are players who bought the Battlefield games just for these multiplayer modes because that's really where the meat of the game was. Like, there there are plenty of examples of games out there that might have some limited single-player content, but the vast majority of the experience is really aimed at multiplayer. So why should you just accept that the thing you bought no longer has all the features that it was supposed to have available to you. Why should that be allowed? 
So the fans ran the servers for a few years, but in 2017, EA sent a legal notice to them and asked them to shut it all down, which they did. And when you think about it, you can understand. EA is a big company. It's got deep pockets. You don't really want to get in an IP dispute with them. And EA was saying, hey, you know what? You don't have the authorization to do stuff like distribute content that has our logo on it and our trademarked content and intellectual property on it. And the people running the server said, you know what? You're totally right. We don't have that authority. It's not our right. We can't present ourselves as representing a company when we don't have any connection to that company. So they shut it down. Now, for many fans and preservationists, this kind of activity has become a huge point of frustration. If there are no legitimate ways to access or to preserve a game, then there is a risk that that game is just going to fade into obscurity forever. All that work will just be forgotten. The games industry has argued that the nature of their work means that an old title can re-emerge on a new platform pretty much any time. And technically, that is true. If a company deems that there's enough of a market to justify the effort that would be involved, they can make those old titles available again. And in some cases, it could be a relatively trivial effort, but in others, it could require the creation of an emulator, or they might have to port the original game to new platforms. And that's not really the same thing as preserving a game because ports of games can really alter fundamental aspects of a title. But it is hard to argue against that industry perspective because it is technically possible to bring back these games. I mean, that's obvious because of the emulator community. They, they're doing it themselves without the authority to do so. So it is possible. Enthusiasts and historians have already proven that it's possible to bring these games back and to run them on modern hardware, sometimes with almost perfect replication. So if enthusiasts and historians can do it, then surely the companies that own the IP can do it too. And sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. They can choose not to do that. In many cases, they probably wouldn't choose to do it because the effort to do it would not end up being paid off. There'd be too few people to go out and buy the new version of the game. Uh, even if, you know, there are people who really, really love that game, there are not enough of them to justify the effort of doing this. So because they have the right to do it, that means we're kind of stuck, right? Like they, they can reissue a game if they want to, but they don't have to. And because of that, that's why we get into the situation where preserving games gets to be difficult. Occasionally, groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation or EFF will attempt to argue that the case for preservation should serve as an exception to copyright and fall under the umbrella of fair use so that it should be perfectly legal to create these emulators and copies of games. But that's a tough battle because the companies that own the IP tend to be pretty convincing to politicians. Now, you could get cynical and say that's because these companies spend a lot of money to lobby politicians and that the politicians listen to people who give them money. Or you could just say that they can afford to have really influential lawyers. Both arguments hold some validity to them. Now, the good news is there are a lot of people working to make sure these games don't just disappear, that folks in the future will be able to access and experience these games, at least on some level. The games will likely not have the same appeal 
because the graphics are going to be outdated. The scope of the game will be much less ambitious. But the ideas and the presentation could inspire people to create new games that they otherwise never would have imagined. They could spark something. I mean, that's part of creativity is building upon things that you have encountered before. Well, you can only do that if you're able to encounter those things. So that's why preservation is so important. Plus, do we really want to live in a world where you can't play elevator action if you want to? Because I don't. So that's kind of this current situation about video game preservation, how it has sort of a, a, a uncertain ground. And I think for the large part, like the, the ROM community, the MAME community, even though you've got tons of people who are using MAME, quote unquote, illegally, in many cases that's overlooked because companies aren't really doing anything with the IP anyway. Like they're not actively trying to reissue old arcade machines because the arcade model no longer really exists, at least not on a sustainable grand scale. But that's not the case across the board. You do occasionally get these moves like um, like the, the fairly recent trend of companies to reissue small versions of old hardware, like the, the Nintendo Entertainment System, the Super Nintendo, uh, where you get really what's an emulator in a box that has you know, a couple dozen games on it, you have cases like that. So there are ways that companies are cashing in on this old IP. And thus there is a, a very strong argument to say, like, we can't allow people to just download this for free because it is part of our, our assets and we are actually doing stuff with them. But for every title that is getting kind of a reissue, there are hundreds that just kind of are gathering dust. So yeah, it's a complicated situation and you can definitely see arguments on both sides that have validity to them. Uh, I definitely want to see titles preserved, but I would love to be able to see a, an approach where there's collaboration between the industry and the historians so that the process can be uh, one that isn't going to encounter opposition right? Like isn't going to be legally challenged and then possibly shut down because that would just mean that all that work would have gone to waste. So that's kind of what I hope for. I don't anticipate it happening anytime soon, but I do hope. And for the record, there are some video game creators out there who definitely feel that way, who feel like preservation is a legitimate and important thing. All right. That's it for this episode. I do have another episode where gonna, I'm going to be talking about preserving data and the challenges of preserving data in a way that is long lasting and accessible. Uh, that's going to be in, it's, it's inspired by a listener request, actually. So look forward to that because it does tie into some of the things we've talked about here today. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in the future, there are a couple of ways to reach out. One is you can leave me a message uh, on the iHeartRadio podcast app, or really it's the iHeartRadio app. You just download it for free, navigate to tech stuff. There's a little microphone icon. You click on that. You can leave a voicemail message for up to 30 seconds. If you want me to use the message in the context of an episode, go ahead and let me know, and I'll be sure to do that. Or you can reach out to me on Twitter. The handle for the show is techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon.
Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 